Well, hello. Thank you for joining me for another Bible study. Today, we're going to be going through Genesis chapter 40. Uh, I'm very excited for this one. Um, before we dive into 40, I'm going to do uh, a little bit of a recap. But before we do that, let's take a second and just uh, dedicate this time to God. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you that we are able to uh, take the time now to pause from our busy lives and study your word. I pray that you will teach us something about Joseph. Uh, give us an example that we should live by. Teach us something about your character. Lord, thank you. Thank you. I pray that you will speak through me, that these will be your words, not mine, and that your message will be conveyed. We love you, and we thank you, Lord. Amen. Okay. So this is a little bit of a shorter one, uh, Genesis chapter 40 is, but uh, 41 is quite a bit longer. Um, and I'm going to do, rather than uh, go into 41 today, I'm going to leave 41 as a chunk. So that one's going to be a little bit longer. Um, and today will be a little bit shorter. So you guys get a little bit of a shorter study. But I can talk a lot. So who knows? It might be 50 minutes. Um, okay, so recap. Genesis 37 is where we start to see the story of Joseph. Uh, now, as you recall, Joseph is the 11th of 12 sons born to Jacob. You have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, uh, and Joseph is the second youngest of those sons. He is the firstborn of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Uh, there's one more son that was born after Joseph, and that's Benjamin. And unfortunately, Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. And as we see in uh, Genesis 37, uh, Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. And he makes that very clear to, to all of them. Um, in fact, let's read um, Genesis 37. So back up a few pages. Genesis 37, 4 through, 1, through 11. Genesis 37, 4 through 11. I'll give you a second to get there. Okay, Genesis 37, starting at verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said. I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars are bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So that establishes a few different things. One, um, Joseph's brothers hated him. They were totally jealous of him. But two, uh, Joseph uh, has a lot of dreams. He's called the king of dreams, as we've discussed in the past. So uh, as you continue on in Genesis 37, um, 
the Hebrews were shepherds. They kept flocks, right? So uh, Jacob's sons went up to Shechem to uh, graze their herds in fresh uh, prairie land, right? So Jacob sends his son Joseph to go and check on his brothers up in Shechem. They're in Hebron, uh, in Canaan is where they are, and they go north up to Shechem. Uh, so then Jacob sends his son, Joseph, says, go, go check on him and bring me back a report. So then he goes up to uh, Shechem and doesn't find his brothers there. He's wandering on a field, and we've, we've talked about this before, um, but let's read it, actually. Uh, 37, 14, picking up halfway through 14. So he's in Shechem, wandering around, looking for his brothers. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. Now, we spoke about this two weeks ago when we did Genesis 37, actually three weeks ago. Yeah, when we did Genesis 37. Um, it's possible, we don't know this for certain, but this could be God interacting in the story through either an angel or this could be a Christophany where it's actually a pre-incarnate uh, uh, appearance of Jesus. We don't know. We don't know. Uh, but I believe that it very well could be. And the reason being is, is that if Joseph doesn't find his brothers in Shechem and just simply goes back south uh, to his dad and says, I, I couldn't find him, the story doesn't continue. He doesn't get sold into slavery. He doesn't go down to G Egypt. And then Israel, the Hebrews, don't end up going down into Egypt, which God is sovereign. God has his plan that he's going to do through the Jews. And it is uh, contingent upon Joseph actually going and being sold as a slave. So uh, we have whether God inspires this person or it's an angel or it's Jesus. Don't know, but a random dude comes and says, hey, I heard him talking, and they're going up to Dothan. Dothan was, as I recall, I think it's 11 miles north, so he wouldn't have randomly gone that far north um, without guidance. So he goes up to Dothan. His brothers see him on approach, and they plot to kill him before he even gets there. Now, it's Reuben, who is the oldest of the sons, the firstborn male. He says, you know what? Uh, let's not kill him. Let's throw him in this cistern. And I spoke about uh, cisterns um, when we were in 37. And it, it's um, the idea is it's a, a really big well is the idea. It's a, it's a very large pit that they would dig uh, and it would be covered, but they would fill it up with water. Uh, this cistern was empty, but they threw him in the cistern. Then they're all sitting around together, all the brothers, and it is uh, Judah, the fourth eldest, uh, we don't know where Reuben has gotten off to. Reuben is not there, but they're all sitting around together eating, and a group of Ishmaelite traders are clearly on their way uh, in a caravan down to Egypt, and it is Judah who says, you know what, what are we going to gain in killing our brother? Let's actually sell him and make some money off of him. So they turn around and sell Joseph into slavery. That then ends chapter 37. Uh, oh, excuse me. They do go back to their father and they take his um, ornate cloak, his robe that Jacob had given to Joseph, and they cover it in uh, animal's blood. 
and they give it to their father, and their father then obviously makes the assumption and assumes that he's been killed by a wild beast because it's his, his cloak. So uh, Jacob is then in mourning because he believes Joseph to be dead. That ends 37. Uh, 38 is a tangent uh, that is a side story about Judah. Uh, then 39 was last week, and we, we talked about that where Joseph is now sold as a slave to Potiphar. Potiphar is the head of Pharaoh, the king in Egypt, the head of his uh, guard, his military guard. Potiphar is the head of that. So we see um, four verses that specifically talk about God blessing Joseph and being with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And he prospered in everything he did because the Lord was with him and blessed him. Potiphar put him in charge of everything in his household. There was no one higher in Potiphar's household except for Potiphar himself. And the only thing that Potiphar worried about is what he was going to have for dinner that day. Everything else was in Joseph's care, and Potiphar was blessed because of this. Then you get Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife sees uh, this handsome young Hebrew man and wants him. And then begins to um, come on to him quite aggressively. Uh, we see Joseph uh, say no over and over and over again. And he intentionally avoids being alone with her. Smart man. But then inevitably, he's a servant in the household. It's going to happen that he's alone with his master's wife, Potiphar's wife. And that's when she grabs him rather forcefully and says, sleep with me. He runs from her, um, leaving the cloak that she's grabbed onto. He just leaves it behind and he flees. He runs. And she then claims attempted rape. This is an example we talked about last week of Joseph being um, an example for us in fleeing fornication. Uh, that's the King James. Uh, sexual immorality is the NIV. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.18 Flee from sexual immorality. All of the sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. 2 Timothy 2.22. 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Joseph gives us an example of how we should handle uh, fornication or sexual immorality, run from it, flee from it, drop whatever you're doing, and get out of there. We spoke about that last week. So Potiphar's wife then tells Potiphar and claims uh, attempted rape. Potiphar then does uh, what I believe is his only uh, option. Uh, I spoke about this last week, but I, I do believe this is my interpretation that Potiphar doesn't actually believe that Joseph uh, was trying to rape his wife. I believe that Potiphar knows the character of his wife and knows the character of Joseph, but he can't go against his wife. He can't pick the side of a slave versus his wife. So he does, in my mind, the nicest thing that he can do. He doesn't kill him. If he did actually believe that Joseph had uh, attempted rape on his wife— he wouldn't be in full rights to kill him on the spot without, without trial, without anything. He's a slave. He would have been fully right to do that. And I do believe that if Potiphar believed that Joseph had done that, that he would have killed him on the spot. But he puts him into Pharaoh's prison. We get some hints uh, in 39 as well as this week in 40. Um, 
first of all, this prison is actually in Potiphar's house. We're going to read that in 40. Uh, and we also know that it is a prison specifically designed for Pharaoh's prisoners. The idea is, is that this is more of a, uh, a, a, it's a separate prison. We don't know necessarily uh, whether it was, if other prisoners were kept there, but we know that it was in Potiphar's house, uh, the, the, the head of the Pharaoh's guard, um, and that he was set aside. Okay, so um, that's where we left off last week. So why don't you join me, and we're going to pick it up. Uh, the last few verses of 39, uh, Genesis 39, picking it up on verse 20. Genesis 39, verse 20. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with these two officials, the chief cup, chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a different meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in the master's house, Why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there was no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday. And he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence 
of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Okay, let's dig into this. 39, chapter 39, verse 21 and 23. The Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So in uh, chapter 39, we have some six different times in which uh, the Bible clearly says that the Lord was with Joseph. He blessed Potiphar because of Joseph, because God was with Joseph, and he blessed even the prison. The prison warden put Joseph in charge of uh, everything in the prison, uh, all the prisoners, because Joseph uh, was blessed by God. The Lord was with Joseph. I spoke about this last week, and again, I spoke it, about it when we talked about Genesis 37. The story of Joseph is not first and foremost the story of just a blessed guy or this guy who trusts God in everything he does. Yes, that is definitely there, and that is our takeaway. That is our uh, interpretation for today and impl uh, uh, application excuse me, application for today is looking at Joseph as an example, as a leader for us to follow. But the story of Joseph is the story of God providing, of God blessing Joseph, but also God protecting and following through on his promises. I spoke about this last week, but we see the Abrahamic covenant is, is the theme of Genesis, and we see God protect that covenant and this element of the covenant is, is that I will bless you. I will make you into a mighty nation, and I will bless your descendants. Joseph is a descendant. Joseph is carrying on the Abrahamic covenant, as I spoke about before. The final fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is a blessing to me and to you today in that Jesus Christ is a descendant of Abraham, and thus the whole world is blessed through the Jews because of the sacrifice that Jesus made for all of us. The story of Joseph is the story of God following through in his promises. Chapter 40, verse 3, put him in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. The captain of the guard, we, we've already established this. This is Potiphar. I already mentioned it, but it's in my notes here. Is that This is actually a prison that was within the grounds of Potiphar's house. Uh, so within Potiphar's household, the captain of the guard, there is this prison. We do not know if there's another more general prison, but we know it's still within his household. So then we have these two main characters of Genesis 40, right? We have the cupbearer and the baker. Now, a baker uh, is pretty obvious what a baker is. Uh, he's a cook. He's the head cook. Uh, he's the baker in Pharaoh's household. He prepared the food for Pharaoh. Now, what is a cupbearer? It's, it, it's pretty obvious and evident within the name, but the idea is this is the person who actually um, brought Pharaoh his food, uh, both his drink as well as his food. And the significance of both of these gentlemen uh, and the reason why this is such a big deal and the reason why they're thrown in prison, it's not... I mean, Pharaoh is, in the Egyptian's mind, Pharaoh is 
a god. Pharaoh is ordained as a godhead put there by the gods, by Ra, and that he is actually deity. So within that realm, it's totally possible that either of these guys, that the baker could have simply burnt some biscuits and that the cupbearer could have spilled a little bit of wine and he's Pharaoh. He could have had both of them killed because of this. We don't know what they did. But what we do know is that both of these gentlemen were hugely significant in protecting Pharaoh. The baker was responsible for the food that Pharaoh ate. So if, if he wanted to poison Pharaoh, or if he wanted to allow somebody to do so, he could, right? The food that Pharaoh's eat, Pharaoh eats could be poisoned. That's also where the importance of the cupbearer comes in. The cupbearer was responsible for protecting the food as it's presented to him to make sure that nobody poisons it, but also to sample the food to make sure that there is no poison in the wine and that there's no poison in the food. So we, again, do not know what these gentlemen did. I like to think, and this is my interpretation, that something happened that caused into question, perhaps Pharaoh got food poisoning, perhaps Pharaoh got sick. Something happened. So Pharaoh, these two gentlemen, one of the two of them is guilty. Pharaoh doesn't know which, so he puts an inquiry in and has both of them put in prison uh, until he can figure out who is the culprit? Who is responsible for this thing? Again, we don't know. But hypothetically, let's say there's a ploy uh, to kill Pharaoh. Pharaoh discovers it, and he knows one of these two is guilty, throws them both in prison, then an investigation is done, then Pharaoh figures out who it is. We don't know. That's just stipulation. But at any rate, they're both in prison. We know that. And they're both uh, in positions of authority, very significant roles. Again, they could have just done a bad job and been thrown in the prison because Pharaoh was just feeling like it. So uh, one of the things that jumped out to me that uh, you could skip right over so fast, okay? When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. That's verse six. Joseph is the responsible for these two prisoners, right? So he's going through the prison, doing his duties. And think about this for a second. We've talked about this. Joseph he could be so bitter and so angry about his predicament. Sold as a slave, his brothers wanted to kill him and they sold him. He goes down into Egypt. Uh, then he's falsely accused of rape and he's thrown in prison. I mean, this guy has had bad thing after bad thing after bad thing happen and he could be totally bitter. But he sees these two prisoners and he's aware enough to note that, that they're feeling dejected, that they're down. He's aware enough of his own situation to say, What's going on, guys? Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Verse 24. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. I, you can see that Joseph took his responsibility seriously, and he did the best that he could at whatever was put in front of him. He trusted God. And the fact that he paused to notice that these two prisoners were feeling down and out more so than usual, he paused to say, hey, what's going on, guys? It's, it's just a, a evident of his um, selflessness, of his character as a leader, is that he's attuned to those that are around him. I just think that's pretty cool. Okay, now we have this term, lift up your head. It's used three times. 
verse 13, 19, and 20, the same word, uh, I did a little uh, digging into Blue Letter Bible, uh, and the same word in Hebrew, Nassau is the word, uh, which means to lift up, to be taken away, to carry away. But in Hebrew, so the word is exactly the same, but it is context around the word that gives us the definition of it. So in one instance, he says, uh, uh, Joseph, in interpreting both the cupbearer and the baker's dream, he says that your head will be lifted up. Uh, the difference is, is context of what's around it. It's in verse 20, your head will be lifted up completely off your head. And that's what we see happen. So it's the same term uh, in all three instances. It does mean lifted up. In one instance, it's lifted up in a place of honor. Uh, both of the gentlemen are lifted up. They're taken out. They're lifted out of prison, and they stand before all of the officials. And then he lifts up the uh, cupbearer and returns him to his position, and he lifts up the head of the baker, literally cutting off his head, and then sticks him on a pole. So here's a question for you. Just as we're um, contemplating all of this, what is the point? What's the point of Joseph interpreting these dreams? We don't, we don't hear uh, a response from either the cupbearer or the baker. We know that some time passes. They have these dreams, uh, and then three days later, um, it happens exactly as Joseph had uh, interpreted God gave the interpretation. Joseph clearly says interpretation belongs to God. So it was God who gave this interpretation to Joseph, allowed him to interpret these dreams and give their meaning. But what came from it? What came from it? The closing verse of chapter 40 is the cupbearer's return to his position, but forgets about Joseph. Joseph is stuck there. He ends up being there for two more years after this incident, which we'll find out in verse 30, uh, in chapter 41. So what happens? Why do we even get this interpretation? Because nothing comes from it. Just be patient. Be patient. Uh, something does come from these dreams, and we will discover that as we go into chapter 41. The takeaway as we look at that is, is that things happen in our lives that we just don't understand why. And, and it could be a good thing, it could be a bad thing, and we just say, God, there's no reason for this to happen. Be patient. Everything happens for a reason. And as we pause and we look at this and say, okay, well, why did Joseph interpret these dreams? It was of no benefit. We will see that though the cupbearer does forget him for two years, he does remember him. And that's, uh, you can read chapter 41 if you want to uh, read ahead. So we see Joseph continue to be set apart uh, and different from those. He's different than any of the other characters that we've studied in Genesis thus far. You look at Abraham, you look at Isaac, you look at Jacob, and then you see Joseph. And Joseph acts totally different than any of these other characters in Genesis. He is an example of what it means to be a leader. We see that so clearly. And in fact, next week, Genesis 41, 38, we're going to read, Joseph is one who, in whom is the Spirit of God. We see in Joseph an example of what a leader should look like. It's, it's almost that he is a foreshadowing of King David, of King Solomon, and eventually of the Messiah. You could say that Joseph is a picture of Jesus, of a type of Messiah. Now, he's human, so we know he still sinned, uh, 
but the Bible gives us a great example. And as we wrap up, I want to reference two resources uh, that I use to prep. Um, one is the Expositor's Bible Commentary, uh, and this is specifically a commentary on Genesis through Leviticus. Um, this commentary is uh, very in-depth. I sometimes need an interpretation for their interpretation. Um, both this resource and the next one I'm going to use. Uh, this one is designed for when you're doing exegesis, when you're actually uh, digging into Scripture to discover the historical cultural context, uh, etc. The next one that I'm going to reference is more for interpretation and sermon prep. Um, so this one, um, oh, I'm just going to read it, sorry. Uh, going off on a tangent, explaining too much. Joseph like Solomon, is a picture of a truly wise leader who understands and sees the will of God in the affairs of those around him. In this sense, Joseph stands as a prototype of all the later wise men of Israel. All future leaders must stand the test of measurement against him. It is hardly surprising that one sees foreshadowed in the pictures of Joseph elements that later resemble David, Solomon, and ultimately the Messiah himself. And now, the Holman um, commentary. Uh, again, this is uh, has a lot more interpretation and has uh, elements of, of sermon prep for pastors. Uh, and I enjoy it because it does uh, give some element of application uh, as just thoughts for us today. And that's what I'm going to use it for. This is a quote from F.B. Meyer. The child of God is often called to suffer because there is nothing that will convince onlookers of the reality and power of true religion as suffering will do when it is born with Christian fortitude. We sometimes need to suffer. This is the idea, is, is that Christians are some called to, sometimes called to suffer, to show as an example to others what it means to truly be Christ-like. Everyone's watching. Christians as well as non-Christians alike are watching how you react to adversity. It's not just you who's playing in this game of life. Uh, all of your peers, everyone who is watching is watching you. And the question is, do your peers, do the people at work, do your friends know that you're a Christian? Do they know uh, that you believe in Christ and have a Christian worldview? Because if they do, they're going to even closer watch how you react when things get tough. And it very well could be, and this is what the quote is implying, is, is that it is very possible that God might cause you to go through some hardship so that from that, you can be an example to others of what it means and what it looks like for a Christian to truly trust God and face adversity. Here are some principles and applications that Holman has listed. Believers have no control over some experiences in life, but we can respond to unjust circumstances with faith and integrity. Faithful employees seek the best for their boss, not what might be easiest for themselves. The person who is faithful in the small things of life will ultimately be responsible for greater assets. If you're faithful with a few things, God will put you in charge of more things. Luke 16.10, if you want to dig deeper into that. God's blessings do not insulate our lives from hardship or injustice. God's blessing very well might be a hardship because through that hardship, you are going to grow 
and be blessed. And somebody else might actually come to Christ, a faithful relationship in God, because of witnessing how you handle adversity. So while a challenge or something bad might happen, good can come from it. Our ability to overcome temptation depends more on character than on circumstances. And now a list of applications. Here's four applications that Holman gives. Do your work in such a way that you become indispensable to your employer. Be like Joseph as an employee. Do what you can to lift your boss up. Make them look good. Do what you can to please them and make them look good. Good will come from it. Believe that God will use you in his time and do not force your way into situations when you believe the time is right. Be patient and wait on God. Be still and know that I am God. Some of my favorite verses. Don't believe the lie that God is not aware of secret sin like Joseph. Realize that every sin is against God who knows all. We spoke about this last week. Joseph actually says when Potiphar's wife uh, asks, him to, asks him to sleep with her, he says, how can I sin against God? He doesn't say sin against Potiphar. It's a sin against God. All sin is sin against God. Finally, have moral courage to go along with God's sovereign work in your life. In Joseph, we see an example of what it means to trust God, of what it means to be faithful, and of what it means to truly do everything as if you're working for the Lord. An example for me that I've been witness to these past few years, but especially um, in recent days, is a good friend of mine, uh, Steve Beck. Now, I've done two interviews with Steve, so those who have been uh, following Iron Sheep for the past few years, you've likely seen the interviews that I've done with Steve. Steve has uh, glioblastoma. It's uh, type 4 or stage 4 brain cancer, and he's been battling this uh, for years now. I will include uh, at the bottom of this video, I'll include a link to the video that he and I did, the interview that we did on his property uh, this past summer, so you can get a little bit more context of his story. But uh, the cancer came back, and now Steve is going through uh, radiation again, chemotherapy, uh, and he's having to take steroids and having to do all this stuff, and it is destroying his body as he's going through this. And I see Steve, uh, take about once a week, uh, he and I will get together, uh, well, I go over to his house um, and we hang out so that his wife, uh, he can't be left alone. Uh, so his wife is able to go and do the shopping, etc. And the thing that I love about Steve, his wife will say, hey, he's having a little bit of a rough day. She'll greet me downstairs and I'll go upstairs and she'll say, Steve's having a little bit of a rough day. I uh, just wanted to let you know. And I'll go upstairs and Steve is just glowing. He's got this huge smile on his face. Uh, his whole body is shutting down because of all the chemicals that are being put in it to fight this cancer. And yet he glows with this smile and, and he just, uh, he's joyful. He reflects God's joy and he's not bitter about his situation. He could be totally, uh, angry and bitter and, and, and pissy and all of those things, but he's not. He loves the Lord all the more, even though he's in this predicament. And he is just a good example for me. I'm sure you guys can think of uh, somebody else who is a good example uh, in your life of a Joseph, a person who, despite the hardships that they face, uh, 
they reflect God's joy. We're called to be that. As Christians, we are called in any and every situation to trust God, to love God, and to know that no matter what happens from the situation, God's will will happen. Uh, we were actually talking just this past week, uh, Steve and his wife and I, about the fact we prayed, and we, we co- I'm constantly praying that God would heal Steve in a miraculous way, and he will be healed. We know that for certain. I can guarantee it 100% without equivocation whatsoever, that prayer will be answered in one of two ways. Either he will be miraculously healed and stay living and be a testament of how great God is, or he'll pass and he will instantly be healed. One of those two things will happen, and Steve's okay with either of them. No matter what hardship you face, do you look back with joy on God's sovereignty, or do you wallow in your misery and complain about your situation? Closing questions. How should a believer respond to misfortune? How should a believer respond to misfortune? And why should they respond that way? Two. In what ways is Joseph an example for all Christian leaders today? List off some of his characteristics that make him a good leader. In what ways is Joseph an example for all Christian leaders today? Does God still speak to us through dreams today? Those three are are discussion questions either just to talk uh, in your own head as you're driving to work, discuss them with your spouse, or in your small group. I love you guys. Next week, we are going to pick it up on Genesis 41. It's going to be a long one uh, where Joseph is presented before Pharaoh uh, and we see God's plan of provision for the people of Egypt and the greater region and all of the people of Israel play out. Have a great week. Oh, Lily King is here.